Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica. And uh, this is Remembering the Misremembered. Um, this is the second and final piece to my Matricide mini-series. And um, this is just as bizarre as the story I told in my last episode. So be careful and tread lightly. If you like that episode, you should like this one too. If you did like it. That's the disclaimer. It's heavy stuff. You don't like heavy stuff. This is not episode for you. Otherwise, buckle your seatbelt and tune in. Okay. So, this, um, the ghastly ending to the life of 1950s B-movie actress Susan Cabot put a final fatal exclamation to a life that had begun to partially resemble that of Sunset Boulevard's leading character, Norma Desmond and partly the lives of the characters that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford played so well in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But Susan Cabot's ending was far bloodier and all the more unthinkable because it was 100% real. But no, because she's not exactly well remembered, Susan Cabot was best known as the petite, dark-eyed, dark-haired beauty who co-starred with Audie Murphy in three films and six movies for Roger Corman, most notably The Wasp Woman. On December 10, 1986, Susan Cabot was found bludgeoned to death at her Los Angeles home, clad only in a purple V-neck. Her dead body was surrounded by blood, in the bed, obviously, on the floor, on the ceiling, and on the mirror near. The bloody scene was indeed horrific, but the hilltop home that should have been palatial was a mess, for other reason piece of real estate was the victim of Cabot's extreme hoarding. Rotting food was found in every room of the house. Newspaper and magazines had been stacked so high that they had begun to topple over. The home had been ransacked with drawers open and contents tossed all over the place on its sides. On the scene too was Cabot's 22-year-old curiosity of a son, Timothy Scott Roman, with whom she had shared this home. Tim had four Akita dogs, unusually vicious for their breed, in his bedroom to protect the paramedics who were on the scene. Initially, Timothy told authorities that a tall Latino burglar dressed as a Japanese ninja warrior had invaded the home and murdered his mother. There was far more to the story than met the eye. How did Susan Cabot go from Hollywood actress to show business has-been to Tinseltown Corpse? Let's roll it back to Susan Cabot's origins, who she was, and where she came from to try to figure out how it all went so horribly wrong. Susan Cabot was born Harriet Pearl Shapiro in Boston, Massachusetts on July 9th, 1927 to a Russian Jewish family. Her father suddenly abandoned them and then her mother Elizabeth was committed to a mental institution. Harriet grew up mainly in the Bronx in New York in a total of eight foster homes. It was discovered that while she was in foster care, young Harriet was exposed to deep emotional and sexual abuse, which resulted in intense PTSD. In high school, she was active in the drama club. On July 30, 1944, the 17-year-old Harriet married her friend, interior decorator Martin Sacker. Marriage was a good way for her to escape the foster care system. 
She vacillated between a career in art and a music career, illustrating children's books during the day and singing at the Village Barn nightclub at night. In 1947, she actually landed a bit part in the 20th Century Fox film Kiss of Death, taking the stage name Susan Cabot, Cabot being a meaningful name in Boston. She worked in television and made appearances in commercials. Casting director Maxwell Arnall, who worked for Columbia Pictures, spotted her at the Village Barn. As a result of this new association, Susan Cabot was cast in On the Isle of Samoa in 1950 opposite John Hall. She signed a contract with Universal Pictures. Susan's dark features made her ideal to play ethnic roles. In 1951, they cast her as an Indian woman in Tomahawk with Van Heflin. She became romantically involved with actor Alex Nichol, who also co-starred in the film. She was cast in Flame of Araby that year, too. 1951 is also the year that Susan split from husband Martin Sacker. The film work increased. She worked regularly throughout the 1950s, mostly in westerns and films with Arabian themes. Little attention was paid to the actual acting talent of Susan Cabot. Mostly they wanted her for her looks. She later complained that they simply didn't know what to do with her. She was seen in Son of Alibaba with Tony Curtis and the Battle of Apache Pass with Jeff Chandler. Being five foot two made her an ideal choice to play opposite diminutive war hero and actor Audie Murphy, with whom she teamed up on the film's 1952's Duel at Silver Creek 1953's Gunsmoke, and 1954's Ride Clear of Diablo. Susan Cabot asked to be released from her Universal contract. She had been offered an opportunity to work on the Broadway stage in Harold Robbins, a stone for Danny Fisher under the direction of Leonard Cantor. She studied the Meisner technique with Sanford Meisner himself too. She made a TV appearance in a craft theater episode and in two episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel, she began working with Roger Corman, a lover of hers. Roger Corman films seemed like a step backwards. Susan Cabot's mental health issues were becoming more obvious. She often flew into rages and was very, very moody. But Corman cast Susan in six films, including Sorority Girl, Carnival Rock, and War of the Satellites. The most memorable Corman-Cabot collabs were 1958's Machine Gun Kelly, where she played the sassy mole of Charles Bronson, and of course the picture that ended Cabot's film career, 1959's The Wasp Woman. In The Wasp Woman, Cabot portrayed Janice Starman, a woman who had her own cosmetics company and started injecting herself with a royal jelly formula that came from Queen Wasps in an effort to stave off the aging process. The jelly carried with it deadly consequences and side effects. It turned Starlin into a murdering wasp. The only thing that could stop her was her death at the hands of the man who created the formula. This film served as eerie foreshadowing for the future of Susan Cabot. This is considered her last film, although technically her last film was Surrender Hell, released that same year. Following this, she didn't act again until 1970 when she did an episode of Bracken's World, and that put an end into her career as an actress. Her time as a Hollywood actress gave Susan Cabot the opportunity to meet and date interesting and varied men. Her love life and social life were very exciting. She dated Desi Arnaz, although I'm not sure if this was while he was still married to Lucy or not. 
She dated Marlon Brando, Red Buttons, Christopher Jones, and many others. The relationship that was perhaps most intriguing and that came with long-lasting ramifications was the one with the charming King Hussein of Jordan. The young King, 23 and recently divorced, asked the CIA to procure female companionship for him during his 1959 tour of New York and Los Angeles. Susan, who was 32 at the time, first met the King at a party hosted by oil man Edwin Pauley, who was a good friend of Howard Hughes. The CIA instructed Susan to go to bed with King Hussein, which she wasn't interested in doing at first. But upon meeting the King, she was so taken with him and he with her that a romance did commence. The twosome discreetly rendezvoused in the world's most exclusive playground, but personal details of the relationship started to leak. When the press got wind of the relationship, King Hussein denied even knowing Susan Cabot. Their relationship is believed to have lasted between five and seven years, and Susan became pregnant, giving birth to a son named Timothy on January 27, 1964. Initially, actor Christopher Jones claimed that the baby was his, perhaps to protect Susan's reputation. Susan had claimed that Timothy was the issue of a brief marriage to an English diplomat. She was never married to an English diplomat. It was eventually <clears throat> confirmed that Timothy was King Hussein's biological son. It's not clear what ultimately ended the relationship of Susan Cabot and King Hussein. Perhaps the Muslim leader's family learned that Susan Cabot was Jewish and insisted that he end the relationship. Perhaps the king couldn't handle Susan's mental problems, or maybe it just naturally flamed out. I guess we will never know. But what we do know is that Susan Cabot was the recipient of $1,500 a month from the keeper of the king's purse, Amon Jordan, which was believed to be child support. King Hussein was known to be very generous to Susan Cabot among those in her circle. As far as Susan Cabot driving the king away because of her behavior, that possibility is all too real. Those who were close to Susan had real trouble dealing with her manic episodes, her suicidal depression, her paranoia, and her irrational need for constant reassurance. If you complimented her on her beauty or how nice her dress was, she would repeatedly ask if she or her dress were really that pretty, and if it was or if she was, why didn't they compliment her or it the last time she wore it or the last time they saw her? It drove people up the wall and only got worse with time, and this is uh, per her second husband, Michael Roman, who she married in 1968. He gave Timothy his name, Timothy Scott Roman, and helped Susan to raise him. The marriage lasted until 1983. Timothy had problems from the beginning. He was afflicted with dwarfism and a troubled pituitary gland. He was taking highly experimental growth hormone medication linked to Kutzfeldt-Jacob disease, or CJD, aka subacute spongiform encephalopathy or neurocognitive disorder due to prion disease. CJD is a degenerative brain disorder that can lead to behavioral changes, memory problems, and later dementia, blindness, falling into a comatose state, uh, and eventually death. The medication that Timothy was on enabled him to grow to a height of five foot four, more than a foot taller than his natural height, 
and also is believed to have given him a more youthful appearance than he would have maintained otherwise. The medicine, true to its nature, was causing his brain cells to grow too. It was a precarious situation because it was such a risk to Timothy's health. By the 1970s, Susan Cabot's career as an actress was over, but she still had a good income thanks to real estate investments, and she acquired, restored, and resold vintage cars. And there's that $1,500 a month that was coming in from Jordan. Still, Susan was worried about aging. Noticing that Timothy had such a youthful appearance that was attributed to his meds, Susan Cabot started injecting herself with Tim's experimental growth hormones in a scenario that was reminiscent of the Wasp Woman. She didn't appear to worry about the side effects. All she cared about was that she didn't appear to be aging at all. This medication pushed the deterioration of Susan's already troubled psyche into overdrive. She was under the care of a psychologist who found that Susan's troubles were so emotionally draining that they took a severe toll on the psychologist's own mental health. Because of her mental illness, Susan Cabot couldn't care for herself any longer and was dependent on her son for her most basic needs, and Timothy was in no shape to take care of her. Fast forward to December 10, 1986, the night that 59-year-old Susan Cabot was bludgeoned to death, not at the hands of a tall Latino man dressed as a Japanese ninja, but at the hands of her beleaguered son, Timothy. Timothy testified that his mother woke him up with screams, calling for her mother, Elizabeth. I'm assuming that mother and son likely shared the same bed. She didn't even recognize Timothy, who attempted to call 911. She grabbed a barbell and scalpel and seemed poised to attack him. Timothy got the bar barbell from his mother and beat her to death with it. He kind of panicked then and hid the barbell and the scalpel and told police the ninja story, not thinking they would believe the true story. His lawyers also said that Tim's actions were due to the medications he was taking medication that, in the words of his lawyer, made him an experiment of the human race. Timothy was initially charged with second-degree murder. There was no proof of premeditation on Timothy's part, so the charge was changed to involuntary manslaughter. Timothy pled guilty and was convicted. On November 28, 1989, Timothy Roman was sentenced to three years probation and ordered to undergo psychiatric counseling. He was given credit for the two and a half years he had spent in prison awaiting his trial. Those who knew Susan Cabot did not come down hard on Timothy because they understood and knew how impossible she could be. In 2003, Timothy passed away from heart failure. He was five days shy of his 39th birthday. This is a very sad and deeply tragic story of matricide and the bizarre circumstances that led to it in this particular case. Anyway, I'm done talking about matricide for now. I'm going to have uh, going a totally different direction for my next episode. But anyway, I'm Monica. This is Remembering the Misremembered, and I will have a new story for you soon.